Thanks, Levi. You're welcome. Uh, and they're attempting to record this, so that's what this weird thing right here is for. So the reason why I have my computer today is the printer at, at, at the office didn't work, so I'm going to be going techie today. All right, so what we're going to do first is we're going to pray, but before I do that, I want to remind you how this is going to go. See, it's 6.15, so we will stop and take a little bit of a break. People can stretch, do all that. There'll be coffee, go to the bathroom, talk on the phone or do whatever for a few minutes. Um, we probably won't go until 8, but, but that's uh, the plan is 6 to 8. And if we end early, that's probably good for all the families anyway um, and young kids. So, All right. If you got your Bibles, you're going to need them. And if you got a piece of paper, that would be awesome. Bob was awesome last week and had a nice organized handout. I do not have one this week. Um, but if you want to take notes, take notes. Uh, and we will get going. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for who you are. Um, thank you for Alan's word today. I'm just reminded today of my own weakness and how we need your help. God, I am a, a sinful man. Um, I am a weak man. And yet you are strong. And so I just lean into that. Uh, we lean into Jesus today, who is our only hope. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak uh, today, that you would speak through your word, that you would help us to understand um, your scriptures. God, I pray that where I am wrong in the things that I say, that you would um, just teach them that it is wrong and, and help us to understand what is, what is true and be, be the filter um, in, our, in our hearts. Um, so would you come and help in Jesus name? Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to look at a couple of verses to start. Oh, look at that paper. I just wanted to make sure. Here. <laughs> We're going to bounce around the Bible a lot, but I just wanted to open up um, with a few verses here. The topic for today is going to be the role of the Holy Spirit with Scripture. So that's the role of the Holy Spirit with Scripture. That's the title. Um, and we're going to look at scripture right now. Proverbs 30, 5 to 6. Proverbs 30, 5 to 6. Somewhere in the middle of your Bible. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Psalm 119, 97 to 104. Psalm 119, 97 to 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. 
Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Somewhere after there, after uh, Psalms and Proverbs, then comes Big Isaiah. Somewhere in there, Big Jeremiah. Which I think I read somewhere that Jeremiah is actually the has the most words. It's not Psalms. So Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Your words. Speaking of God's words here, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I love that verse. You have it inscribed on one of my Bibles. Your words were found and I ate them. So. Scripture, before we get really moving, what I want us to remember is two different things. First of all, I want us to remember that every single one of us has some kind of theology. All of us have some kind of theology, even if it's an anti-theology, even if it's against God. We have some kind of view of God that shapes us. Second, that the study of doctrine is not simply a mental exercise, but it's an exercise of spiritual health. So the study of doctrine is not simply a mental exercise, but an exercise of spiritual health. So, number one, all of us are theologians. David Wells, a theologian and cultural critic who wrote six volumes of culturally focused books on what accounts for the loss of theology in the church, said this. Let us not think, I said, that we really have a choice between having a theology and not having one. We all have our theologies, for we all have a way of putting things together in our own minds that, if we are Christian, has a shape that arises from our knowledge of God and his word. We might not be conscious of the process. Indeed, we frequently are not. But at the very least, we will organize our perceptions into some sort of pattern that seems to make sense to us. The question at issue, then, is not whether we will have a theology But whether it will be a good or bad one, whether we will become conscious of our thinking processes or not, and more particularly, whether we will learn to bring all our thoughts into obedience to Christ or not. So whether you describe yourself as a theologian or not, you are a theologian. So welcome (laughs) theologians. And it's not a bad word. Theology isn't a bad word. Uh, A Dutch theologian who lived between 1954 and 1921, said this about dogmatic theology. That's even a scarier word. So if you say theology, now you're going to say dogmatic theology? How dare you? But this is what he said. A theologian's sole responsibility is to think God's thoughts after him and to reproduce the unity that is objectively present in the thoughts of God and has been recorded for the eye of faith in Scripture. So the task of... The theologian, the task of theology is should be um, to think God's thoughts after him. It's a great way to think about it. We want to think the way God thinks. A more recent theologian, John Webster, who until his recent death, one person called him the best theologian on earth. And he just passed away. He said this about theology. Christianity or excuse me, Christian theology is biblical reasoning, biblical reasoning. 
It is the redeemed intellect's reflective apprehension. So he's a theologian, of course. He's got to use big words. The redeemed intellect's reflective apprehension of God's gospel address through the embassy of Scripture, enabled and corrected by God's presence and having fellowship with him as its end. That's a mouthful. But biblical reasoning. Love that. Love that way. I just say it. He also said theology serves the word of God by assisting the church to remain faithful to the gospel as it's manifest in Holy Scripture. So you're not trying to create something new. That's not the task of theology. You're trying to remain faithful to what God has said here. Otherwise, it ultimately doesn't matter. So that's what we're after. That's what we're after in these classes. And as we go, in many ways, that's what we're doing. We're studying theology. We want to engage in biblical reasoning. We want to use our minds in such a way that our minds begin to take the shape of the Bible. We also want to be faithful to the gospel as it's manifest in the Bible, the good news of Jesus. So our minds matter. Our minds matter. Otherwise, why are we here? Our minds matter. Jesus, Jesus said, we should love our God with all our heart, soul and mind. So doing theology is a big deal. Doing theology is a big deal. It's obeying Jesus and it's obeying not all of, but it's obeying a piece of the greatest commandments to love God with all of your mind. So think of this as in some ways an act of love, which again, culturally we go. It doesn't sound like it to me. Number two, uh, studying doctrine is an exercise in spiritual health. So again, we had that um, all of us are theologians and that studying doctrine is an exercise in spiritual health. Doctrine in some Christian circles gets a bad name. And I think, again, the, the air we breathe um, is that doctrine is somehow divisive, um, that, that doctrine uh, cuts off from intimacy with God, that doctrine also is a bad word, that somehow it can even be a barrier in our relationship with God. Some describe Christianity as more of a life than a doctrine, as if it's just a life and not a doctrine. And of course, it's a both and there. It is a life, but it's not only a life. The teachings of Christianity are summarized in doctrines. It's why the early church referred to a system of teachings that believers were devoted to learning. It talks a lot about learning the teaching, um, the apostles' word, uh, and the word of God in the gospel. So they're devoted to learning something, a teaching. Uh, there's verses like the whole counsel of God. Um, look at Acts. So this is the early church here. Look at Acts 2, 42 to 47. Acts 2, 42 to 47. We get kind of a peek at what the early church is doing. I think the Acts, Acts is in the New Testament somewhere. Let's see, 2, 42 to 47. This is speaking of believers um, soon after Pentecost. So this is like right after Pentecost. Everybody gets saved. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all or any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
So one of the first things we have there is that they were devoted to something. They were devoted to the apostles teaching. The early church was learning what they were saying. And then we also have things like fellowship and breaking bread. And that's probably referring also to the communion and celebrating the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. They're also selling their possessions, their belongings. So they're kind of a big, happy family. So there's a sense of fellowship and brotherhood. And there's also this sense of we're going to go, we're going to go to the synagogue, we're going to go and we're going to listen to what the apostles say. And we're going to go listen to God's word in the Old Testament and his word spoken through what has just happened, that Jesus has risen from the dead. So it's an early church thing to be devoted to doctrine. So there was a system of teachings called doctrine that was also in comparison to other teachings and that there was a a differentiation between them. There's good doctrine and there's bad doctrine. There's good teaching and there's bad teaching. First Timothy, again, early church, Paul writing to Timothy later on in his life. First Timothy six, three to four. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of of gain. So again, Paul instructing Timothy um, right before that, he said, teach and urge these things. He's, he's telling them, he's telling him to teach sound teaching, to teach the doctrine that accords with godliness. Again, you see a link there. You have teaching and doctrine and a lifestyle. This is going to make you holy. So it's spiritually nourishing and that there are false doctrines out there. And interestingly, he talks about uh, controversy and quarreling and envy and dissension. And some of us, again, in our culture would think, well, isn't that what doctrine does? Doctrine itself creates the envy and the dissension and the quarreling. Um, and doctrine, when it's healthy, when it's sound, does not. It unites us to Jesus Christ. It, it tells the story of redemption and that all that God has done to have victory over our sin and victory over, over death. So we see that there is a comparison of, of teachings. Doctrine, and, and again, we're going to get to the main point here in a second, but I felt like we needed to set up a little bit. Why are we doing this? Um, and what is doctrine? What is theology? Doctrine can be defined as a theological formulation that attempts to provide a summary statement of the teaching of Scripture on a particular theological topic. So again, you're getting it from the Bible. You pick a topic, God, Scripture, Holy Spirit, salvation. And then you look at the scripture and you start writing down, huh, I wonder what God says about X. Go through your Bible, write it down, make a summary statement. That in some ways is doctrine. Now that may be bad doctrine or good doctrine, depending on how you're doing it. Um, but but that is what it is. It's a, it's a summary of scripture on a particular topic. Because one thing about scripture is scripture doesn't come to us as just a list of doctrines. Like you just don't get... Um, this isn't just a statement of faith. This is a story. And this is actually kind of the flip side of another thing that we should talk about um, in a different 
session. But we have a story, we have a narrative of what God has done in his world through people, through events, through all those, all those things. But we also learn that in those things that they had a doctrine, that they had a teaching, and then we begin to summarize what's there so that we can understand it and set forth particular doctrines. So the idea is that we can summarize what scripture says about X, whatever X is, that's doctrine. Doctrine has also been defined as an explanation of the historic events of Christianity and their meaning and explanation. Um, One Presbyterian guy, he said this, Christ died, that's history. Christ died for our sins, that's doctrine. So we're talking about something that happened in history. Jesus of Nazareth actually walked the earth. He did a bunch of stuff, signs and wonders. He taught, then he died and then he rose again and he ascended. Those are great facts. Of course they are. I mean, that's that's the good news. But the explanation of the news, the meaning of the news is what is being written in the scriptures and then is what we formulate as doctrine. Christ died. That's history. Christ died for our sins. That's doctrine saying that that death accomplished something. It means something. It wasn't just a man dying. The end of the story. So we have this idea of doctrine as summary doctrine as meaning of actual history. So again, it's, it's rooted in what happened in history, actual day-to-day life, and then it's the explanation of what happened and the meaning of what happened. And the Bible discusses the idea of sound doctrine, and that's where I'm getting this kick on health. If you look at your footnote in some of your Bibles, if you have the ESV, a lot of times when it says sound, you'll see a footnote that says healthy. And I've seen about that in our culture, just our big push for, for health. You know, be be healthy, um, be healthy and whole. Um, but that's what Paul says in many times. First Timothy and second Timothy. Titus speaks of healthy doctrine. So it's a spiritually healthy thing to understand doctrine because it nourishes the soul. This is an act. This is an exercise in being healthy, being healthy in our spiritual life. Matthew Henry, a Puritan, um, said Sound doctrine that it was that what is agreeable to the word, which is pure and uncorrupt, healthful and nourishing to eternal life. So doctrine agreeable to the word, pure and uncorrupt, healthful and nourishing to eternal life. The Bible says there's going to come a time when people don't want to hear sound teaching or um, what the NIV says, sound doctrine. What do they want to hear? They want to hear things that itch their ears. They want to hear things that scratch their back. They want to hear things that make them feel good. Um, 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound. Look at your footnote. Three or healthy down below for some, of, for some of your translations. But have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, of an evangelist, fulfill your Ministry. So there's this charge that Paul is making in the presence of God for Timothy to preach the word. 
And he's telling them there's going to be a time coming when people don't want to put up with what is sound and with what is healthy, that with what is in the word, and they're going to try to get stuff to to itch their ears. They're going to try to get stuff to suit their own pleasures, their own ideas. And you'll see, too, that preaching the word is linked to sound doctrine. So, again, doctrine and the word of God linked up. So that's what we're going to do. What we're going to do tonight is we are going to look at doctrines. We're going to look at one or to say two in particular of inspiration and illumination. Inspiration and illumination. I think I have one. I write something down. I'll write that down. Inspiration. Great word. Illumination. That's what happens when you type all the time. Inspiration and illumination, and we'll get to that in a bit. Um, I'm going to be doing quite a bit of quoting tonight. You probably already noticed that. And I'm a derivative person. I'm not an original thinker at all. Um, And so that's one reason why I do it. Um, It's because there's a lot of other people out there who have said things way better than me. And this is even a better environment, obviously, than preaching a sermon. You're not supposed to sit there quoting all the time. Um, um, But in a a more teaching-oriented spot, I think it's a good way for a couple reasons. I think it helps us. It it gives us kind of a church history focus because we help learning from what other people have said. Um, And I'll be quoting people mainly from the Reformation up. It's not because the early church is bad, and sometimes we can quote too much from the Reformation up. Um, and that's 1500s, um, when the Protestant church broke off from the Roman Catholic church. Um, so I'll be quoting um, a lot of, of them or people that are a little closer to our era and some that are present, present day. Um, but Levi later, when he starts to talk about the formation of the canon, he's going to be doing a lot of early, earlier church quotes, because a lot of that was going on then as, as well. But um, so that's one of the reasons why I do it is because I'm not original um, and because people say it way better than I do. And it's good to learn from from other people. Um, And it's also a good reminder to us uh, that we're not just individuals. Um, Jesus saved a body. He saved a body of people. So we need to learn from other people as well. Sometimes we can have too much of a focus of it's just me and my Bible. It's me, my Bible and the Holy Spirit. And that's all I need. I don't need a commentary. I don't need somebody else to tell me. It's just it's just us. Now, there is a piece of truth to that. The Holy Spirit works through the word. One of the great benefits of the Reformation is it actually put the word of God into the hands of people because it wasn't just in the language of the church. But Luther translated it into German. Um, but the um, what it reminds us is that we're a body. Um, um, there's a there's a corporate dimension to Christianity. God did not just come to save you as the individual. Most of the New Testament speaks of it in a corporate sense, a whole body. Again, Alan mentioning today the importance of the body and the gifts and the different kinds of people and types of people. Um, and so we, we need each other. Um, we need each other. And so that's one reason why we learn from other people. And we all have biases. I have a ton of biases. My upbringing, um, my, my race, being an American... Um, my own sin. I mean, all, all kinds of things that mess up my reading of the Bible. And so to hear other people in other cultures, other races, times past, helps, helps us understand in a bigger way and overcome some of our biases. But remember, everybody that I quote, this is just a disclaimer, I don't believe with, I don't agree with everything that, I don't agree with 
man, I'm having a hard time saying that. I don't agree with everything the people that I quote say necessarily. Um, and that's okay. Um, because none of us probably agree with all of us on everything. You know what I mean? Um, so remember, remember that. We need to be discerning readers and listeners. All right, so last week, that was introduction. Last week, uh, Pastor Bob discussed the Word of God in a broad sense, especially in regards to Revelation. So Revelation would probably be up here somewhere if you were to have kind of a ranking, though these are also included, or at least this one is in Revelation. We'll get into that. Um, But he was speaking of Revelation, meaning God has revealed himself. God has revealed himself in the Scriptures. God speaks. He's spoken in, in the Scriptures. He's spoken in nature. And he's spoken in his son. He's spoken in Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures begin with the reality that there is one God and that one God created absolutely everything and that this one God spoke that he spoke. And so according to the scriptures, God speaking is one of the very first things that we see God doing in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on. God said, God said, God said, and something happened. So we know that God is a communicating God. That's a fact. There's a Christian foundation for us. God, we could write that down. God is a communicating God. He is a revealing God. And he does so in several different ways. We also learn from the beginning of the Bible that God spoke and created people. And this is all Genesis 1, 2, and 3, kind of what I'm referring to here. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That God made the world and that God made men and women and placed them in his good world and that he revealed himself to them by speaking to them and by developing a relationship with them. Talks about them in the garden, walking around, and then God coming, where are you, Adam, you know, after he sins and all that. Kind of this very relational Language. So God is a relational God. God is a communicating God. He is a personal God in relationship with his people. So God is personal and God is relational. That's what we learn of him from the Bible, from the scriptures. And this worldview, uh, this understanding of reality cuts against the grain, again, of our culture Many scientists speak of the beginning of reality impersonally, impersonally. A personal relational God is not presupposed, but impersonal energy is presupposed. Popular astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson in his YouTube video, which if we were in there, I would play it for you. YouTube video, A Brief History of Everything proclaims this view. He takes like eight minutes and he says in the beginning and then he gives the history of everything, which he says starts with energy. And I think it's 13.7 billion years or so. Um, but he starts with something. So there's some kind of matter. There's some kind well, not really matter, but, but, there's, but there's an energy. There's a force. So what's that? Impersonal. Impersonal force. That's, that's the worldview that is guiding some scientists. And so if one assumes his view, it's very difficult to arrive at purpose and meaning in life. If in the beginning, everything is simply impersonal force and impersonal energy, then there's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's no direction. There's no goal. Again, this is a narrative. This is a story. There's a starting and there's an ending. 
um, some science gives a different view of an impersonal force as the beginning of absolutely everything. The Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer described this viewpoint when he said this. This impersonality may be mass, energy, or motion, but they are all impersonal and all equally impersonal. Energy is just as impersonal as mass or motion. Beginning with the impersonal, everything, including man, must be explained in terms of the impersonal plus time plus chance. Do not let anyone divert your minds at this point. There are no other factors in the formula because there are no other factors that exist. If we begin with an impersonal, we cannot then have some form of teleological, there's a big word, that means goal, some form of teleological concept. There's not a goal. It's just impersonal force. Which is why Tyson, again back to the astrophysicists, he tweeted um, on September 6th the following comment. In five billion years, the sun will expand and engulf our orbit as the charred ember that was once Earth vaporizes. Have a nice day. (laughs) So there's one viewpoint of the world. Impersonal energy ends with probably some kind of explosion or some other kind of impersonal energy. And that's pretty much the story. Now, not now to be fair um, to to him, he probably does not live that way in his day to day life. um, And he would probably have all kinds of other things to say. He's a very smart Smart man. Um, But the point is, if that's your guiding viewpoint and your guiding principle, your view of reality is ultimately impersonal. There's no communication of God. There's no purpose. There's just impersonal energy and matter and no goal. And so Schaefer um, helps us see that. And that's a book called He is There and He is Not Silent. If you want to write that down. He is there and he is not silent. If you like Christian philosophy, Schaefer um, isn't alive anymore. But I think it was in the 60s, 70s, 80s, right in that neighborhood. He was very popular, a very loving man, a very smart man who helped kind of confront um, some of these viewpoints. So meaning and purpose get meaningless real fast if we're ultimately vaporized, right? Schaefer goes on. The dilemma of modern man is simple. He does not know why man has any meaning. He is lost. Man remains a zero. This is the damnation of our generation, the heart of modern man's problem. But if we begin with a personal beginning, and this is the origin of all else, then the personal does have meaning. And man and his aspirations are not meaningless. Man's aspirations of reality, of personality, are in line with what was originally there and what has always been intrinsic, what has always intrinsically been. So what he's saying there is that if you have impersonality, the damnation of our generation is that is that we have a problem. There is just utter impersonalness and meaninglessness. But if we have a presupposition that there is a personal God and a personal communication and revelation to us, we have meaning, we have goal, and we have purpose. So another Christian foundation is that not just that God speaks, which would be one, but to be a little bit more explicit, the personal triune God speaks. The personal triune God speaks. Christianity is fundamentally different than that view. It asserts a personal God who speaks. And it goes even further. The Bible reveals that God is triune. That God is one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So all of reality, before there was any matter, any, any, um, any people, any plants, any stars, before there was anything, there was still personalness 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune, existing from all eternity. Relational. Which makes sense of reality because we are relational beings. We are speaking beings. We are communicating beings. John 1, 1 to 2. John 1, 1 to 2 gives the biblical um, perspective on reality. That the Father and the Son were with one another from eternity. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Their communication began before the world began, in the beginning, that they enjoyed fellowship with one another. We learn that the, that the Son was sent by the Father to save all that the Father had given Him. Um, that's John 17. We did a little bit of that um, verse today in, in church. That there was a plan from the beginning um, for the triune God to save humanity. We have Father and Son agreeing on a mission before time began that the Father was going to give people to the Son and the Son was going to come into the world and save His people. And in, in, in the same book, meaning John, we see that the Son was sent into the world to save sinners and that the Holy Spirit, so there's the Trinity, there's, there's the three, the Holy Spirit is sent to speak to them. The Son sent to save, the Holy Spirit sent to speak to them. After the sun departs, at least um, in in a physical way, John fourteen. This is John fourteen twenty six. John fourteen twenty six. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. This is Jesus talking to his disciples before he is about ready to die. A big chunk of John's that. Isn't that amazing? That before he's dying, he's, he's giving him all of this. He's giving them all of this information about his relationship with the Father and his relationship with the Spirit. John 14, 26. But the Helper, speaking to his disciples, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. So Jesus says to his disciples, the Holy Spirit that the Father is going to send in his name will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In chapter 16, 12 to 13. Again, Jesus still talking. He's kind of talking a while here. Um, I still have many things to say to you, again, as disciples, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It's a little confusing because they're doing all this back and forth stuff. Um, But he's saying to his disciples, I'm going to go. You can't bear the stuff now. But when I leave, the Spirit's coming. And the Spirit is going to, to speak. The Spirit is going to guide you into the truth. And that whatever the Spirit hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. And that the Spirit's going to glorify Jesus. Um, so that's what we see the Spirit doing in the earliest days of the church. So there we have a snapshot of the personal and relational triune God. The Father sending, the Son saving, and the Spirit speaking. So again, we are a Trinitarian. Christianity is Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Michael Horton, another theologian, put it this way. Scripture 
is the church's authoritative canon because it comes from the Father. Scripture's authority also derives from the Son as its content. Yet our Trinitarian coordinates are not set until we have included in our focus the perfect agency of the Spirit. Spirit breathed out these texts, speaking of Scripture, and illumines hearers now to receive them as the Word of God. What he's trying to get out there is just showing again what the Father does uniquely, what the Son does uniquely, and what the Spirit does uniquely. So again, the foundational point of Christianity is that the relational God has revealed himself to creatures, and he didn't have to. He didn't have to. He could have remained silent. But God, by his own initiative, spoke by his own sovereign freedom. He revealed himself. So the transcendent God, the transcendent God of the universe, broke into the material world, broke into creaturely reality, and spoke. So whenever we're talking about revelation, revelation is an act of grace. It's not forced. It's his desire. He desires to speak. He desires to communicate with his creatures. It's his gracious invitation for us to know him as he says he is and as he says we are. That's what Revelation is. God's gracious invitation for us to know him as he says he is and as he says we are. So that's different than the worldview of strict scientism that says that science should be the interpretive grid by which we interpret all reality. Um, and again, scientism is different than being a scientist. Science is great. God created science. General revelation is full of science, meaning God made nature. And nature speaks all kinds of things. And we'll be learning about the depths of nature um, many, many years from now. But scientism is the idea that all of interpretive reality should just be strictly stuck on science without the other disciplines at all. And so it ends up being godless. So science, when reduced to the only reality worth pursuing, is another thing altogether. That's not a good thing. That can be an evil thing if that is the only reality. Other opinions um, have, have come. Certain parts of surrounding culture seem to focus on that kind of scientist which eliminates and even mocks any form of outside theistic revelation. And so in this kind of science, there's only the what, there is not the why. There's only the what, it's just what is there. There's not the why, it, it can't give an answer to that. And so monotheism, the idea that there's one God is unnecessary, God's not spoken. And paganism, many gods, that's also unnecessary because the gods haven't spoken. There is no God, period, end of story. There is no revelation, we can't see um, any transcendent being. So, according to that, there's no God, there's no many gods, and so we have shaken off the shackles of the gods. And so science triumphs alone as the dictation of all of our reality. And that can lead to something. Um, so if that's one of our popular views right now, meaning not the scriptural one, I'm going to kind of be weaving things back and forth, and I hope, hope, hope this will make more sense when we get to that as well. Um, but there's another popular vision of reality called Gnosticism, another big word. So we have scientism, we have Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is a more religious view um, and a, a, a more pagan idea. Um, according to Mark Sayers, one of the central tenets of Gnosticism is that truth is found within the individual. The truth is found within the individual. We must look inside 
to find our true self. So a couple cultural ideas here. No God at all. Only material matter defines reality. Um, another very popular tenet is the truth. It comes from within. You look inside yourself to find your true self. That's where meaning is found. Um, you create your own identity. You don't need to go above yourself. You don't need to go outside yourself. There's no other higher authority for meaning. We just simply need to look within, find our true selves, and be changed. Theologian David Bentley Hart points out that as a culture, we've moved out of paganism. So, again, history here. Early paganism, many gods, tons of different gods, animistic gods, you name it, Greek gods, whatever it is. Gods, gods, gods. We've moved out of that as, as, as history. Then, we, then we, um, we have Judaism. You know, we have Islam, Christianity. But we've, we've kind of gotten past that for some parts of Western culture. And so the only thing that's left is ourselves. So what do we do? We look inside. Sayers writes this, Gnostic spirituality then is not one of obedience and faith, but rather of breaking boundaries, rejecting definitions, transgressing limits. Answers are to be found within. The great quest of life is discover who you really are, to ignore those around to ignore what those around you say, to break past the barriers and definition and rules placed around you, to flout any external authority, to look inside, find your true self and self create. So that's one very popular view of reality. Meaning and purpose from within. David Wells, again, he said this, However it happened, the external God has now disappeared and has been replaced by the internal God. External God has disappeared and has been replaced by the internal God. Transcendence has been swallowed up by imminence. God is to be found only within the self. And once that happened, the boundary between right and wrong, at least as we had thought about these things, went down like a row of falling skittles. Evil and redemption came to be seen as the two sides of the same coin, not the two alternatives in life. The truth is that all of life is being reconceived and reimagined. However, this attempted rebuilding of ourselves and our society on different foundations is leading us, if I may be so bold, into a dead end. The truth is that we are not doing very well. When God, the external God, dies, then the self immediately moves in to fill the vacuum. But then something strange happens. The self also dies. And with it goes meaning and reality. With, when these things go, anything is possible. End quote. Very sobering quote. John Calvin, so we're going to go back. David Wells is current. John Calvin, Protestant reformer, he presented a different way of self-discovery. In the Institutes of Christian Religion, one of the most monumental and influential theological works of church history. This is what he said about how we would know ourselves. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. Then later on, he says... Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. So Calvin says that to be wise, we must know God and know ourselves. And though it's hard to determine which one comes first, the only way we can truly know ourselves is to know God. 
The only way we can know God is if God chooses to reveal himself to us, and he has. So we can only know ourselves inside if the outside God speaks to us. Wells again, what is the locus? Where is the locus of God's truth to be found to the pagan who heard the voice of God's within, who listened to the whisperings of intuition and to the modern who similarly listens within for the voice of self? The answer is the same for the Israelite. It was different. The Bible is not a remarkable illustration of what we have already heard within ourselves. It is a remarkable discovery of what we have not and cannot hear within ourselves. Thus, our inward sense of God and our intuitions about meaning are irrelevant in any effort to differentiate truth from pagan belief. It is how we apply ourselves to learn what God has disclosed of himself in a realm outside ourselves that is important. And unless we steadfastly maintain the distinction in the face of the modern pressures to destroy it, we will soon find that we are using the Bible Merely to corroborate corroborate the validity of what we have already found within our own religious consciousness, which is another way of saying that we are putting ourselves in place of the Bible. It's another way of reasserting the old paganism. When that happens, theology is irredeemably reduced to autobiography and preaching degenerates into mere storytelling. So the good news is that God has spoken and that God has spoken outside of us. That wells again, that God is there, that he is objective to us. He is not there to conform to us. We must conform to him. He summons us from outside of ourselves to know him. We do not go inside of ourselves to find him. We are summoned to know him only on his terms. He is not known on our terms. So. Christian view of revelation That God is speaking from outside of ourselves. It's objective. It's outside of us. It is independent of us. But that's not it. As much as we emphasize the outer revelation of God, we must also emphasize the inner revelation of God who speaks to us through the internal witness of the Spirit. So, we get into these two roles. We get into these two roles of the Spirit with Scripture. We'll take a break in just a minute. Um, of inspiration on the outside and illumination on the inside. Inspiration on the outside, illumination on the inside. So there are two kinds of revelation, general revelation of God in creation, special revelation of God in scripture, the person of Christ and the gospel. There are at least two primary roles of the Holy Spirit. One that is objective outside of us, so that's this one, inspiration, and then one that is subjective inside of us, And that is illumination. And the Holy Spirit is the source of both of them. He's the source of the text that comes to us from outside of us. And I mean us right now. And he illuminates the person so that it lands with power within us. So the Holy Spirit does both of those things. I'm going to drink some water. Um, then we'll hit those, those in two things. Why don't I stop just for a second? We'll take a break um, in a moment. Um, but any, any questions at this point? It's kind of a long introduction. Hopefully I'm going to tie it together. And the reason why I thought that was important as we look at these next two things for the rest of the, of the, of the time. Any, any question or thought at the moment? Well, 
there's actually a verse I was trying to remember. I think it's from Proverbs, but you know, when it talks about how the heart of man being deceitful and desperately wicked. Mm-hmm. So it's the idea that we can find truth inside ourselves, you know, like without guidance. So that's you know, it's crazy. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, sin that that sin keeps us from seeing the truth, which is why we can't interpret reality on ourselves alone. The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Any other questions or comments? And like we said before, there's no bad questions. I mean, it can be a doubting question. It can be it can be a, a comment. I'm another verse you want to throw in. I'm another thought. Um, it can be it can be anything. So we, we want this to be a safe place for for um, any question. And we're not going to be able to answer them all. Some of us ought to say, I, I don't know, because we don't know. Or, I don't know, nobody knows. <laughs> or, I don't know, I'll go look and see if somebody knows. And then we'll come back and talk about it. Any other, any other questions right now? Maybe I'm just kind of that setup of this outside and inside of things like scientism, things like um, Gnosticism, anything like that. Any questions? All right, take a break. Take a break. So let's go five minutes, five minutes or so. Come on back.
Yeah, and it's only like, yeah, people, people really struggle like, with the whole like, concept of the community. Yeah, they have a hard time like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. in some ways, we all do. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, meaning, uh, not struggle that I don't believe it, but struggle is it's hard to, hard to put <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, hard to like, like what, what Jesus was, he was a man, but he was also at the same time, or, yeah. or, or that, yeah. Yeah, and of course, yeah, yeah, or, or, yeah, or, some people are kind of like, they like, okay, Jesus you know, is the son of God, but they can't believe that he's, you know, that he's also you know, God as well. Yeah, and then, then of course, you know, there's the Holy Spirit. Like some, like, yeah, some don't even believe that, like, the like, like, Holy Spirit is like you create with the Trinity, like, the, the, with God, that he's just, you know. So you check this guy to the galaxy. Yeah? So the whole thing about, like, with the meaning of life in the universe and everything? It's like 42. Okay, so yeah, so they, they build this massive supercomputer who's answering the, they answer the life in the universe and everything. That, like, the computer works on for 100 million years, and it crunches out number 42. Like, what the heck? Like, how's that even an answer? And the says, well, you have to understand what the question of what the universe and everything is. So to recalibrate the computer, another 100 million years passes by. And then, like, I don't remember the exact thing, but it was like, uh, the fundamental question was, what's 5 plus 7? Which is 12, right? And the answer is 42. Which is say, the question's absurd. The answer's absurd. There's no reason, rhyme or reason, to the question and the answer. So all irrational. It's so yeah. So like, because basically it's nihilism. Yeah. Yeah. That's something Chip and like the right. Like there's also like the irrational. that just like it's all. Which is kind of. I honestly like, think it's the most coherent. Like that's the nihilism is naturalism pushed to its like, to its farthest to its farthest point. Like and then I think that's the necessary point. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I always think that. Just, yeah. And he has this, um, like, one of the characters is in the night, and he's a best robot. So there's, like, he gets it. Like, he understands. So it's, just, it's just worthless. It's just, like, who cares that you're. Same. And it's the truth of a little guy. Like, a small black dog. It's like, just, just, that's the moment. But the ears look at everything, and you know, just kind of like a sense of. There's, there's all this stuff out there. Oh, so, I didn't like the movie. I didn't bother reading the book. Just small. I mean, it's so overwhelming. Like in a way that you can see why the rationale works. Right. Yeah, they want all these policy kind of like. I mean, there's always. I mean, I don't know. There's always been like certain things like like. Well, they keep in mind that there's all kinds of violence here. I think we need to narrow and just start with the line. I don't know if I was around yeah, yeah, that's why I always like, yeah, I always say, like, like, business suicide bombers, I think, really, the women are still in line. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs>
All righty. We'll get rolling. I'll just kind of talk. I think just about everybody's back in here. All right, so to the point of this class, <laughs> part two. Um, some of that was set up. Some of it I like to try to bring maybe some, some current contemporary ways of thinking um, into interacting with that. Uh, I think it can be helpful to us. Um, in, in in our culture, because all of us are culturally conditioned in, in ways that we don't always know, um, and so the doctrines of, of inspiration and illumination, the two primary roles of the Holy Spirit with Scripture, the objective one, so the one that is outside of us, like I said, is inspiration. The subjective one, kind of is illumination. Um, so if we want to use things like those big words, like I said, objective and subjective. Objective dealing with facts rather than feelings. Subjective, a way a person experiences things. <coughs> I like uh, the framing, and I got this from Wells, this, this outside and inside, um, which I think is just kind of an easy way without using all these big fancy, fancy words. Or things like facts rather than feelings. Um, Subjective being experience. Uh, objective, reality independent of, of us, outside of us. So, the Holy Spirit is the source of both. Both inspiration and illumination. He's the source of the sacred text that comes to us from outside of us. And he illuminates the person so that it lands with power within us. So, we're going to look at the first one. Inspiration. According to the pocket dictionary of theological terms, this is the way they defined it. Inspiration is a term used by many theologians to designate the work of the Holy Spirit in enabling the human authors of the Bible to record what God desired to have written in the scriptures. Holy Spirit enabling the human authors of the Bible. So God, Holy Spirit, enabling human beings authors of the Bible to record what God desired to have written in the scriptures. Though the inspired scriptures come to us from outside of us, meaning it's right here. Um, I mean, we can look at it. Here's, here's the scriptures um, outside of us that the inspired scriptures themselves, though, actually had a combination of both as well. So though this is just outside of us, the inspired scriptures, meaning when they were being written, that was both an outside thing and an inside thing for the writers of the scriptures. You and I only receive inspired text. We don't make inspired text. So in that sense, it's outside of us. But for the writers of scripture, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit from the outside and inspired by the Holy Spirit on the inside to write the scriptures. So, the texts, some of these very popular. The idea, all scripture is inspired by God. A lot of us know that phrase. All scriptures are inspired by God, but that's what we believe. 2 Timothy 3, 16. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
The word there for God breathed, again, I always butcher these, is theonoustos, I think. Yeah. Thank you. And is the idea of God breathed. So theo, God, nuo, or however you say that, breathed out. And you'll see a big word like pneumatology um, when people are talking about the study of the Holy Spirit, which is kind of what we're doing right now. But you have this combination of God and breath and pneuma can also refer to the work of the Holy Spirit. So pneuma and God together, Trinitarian, and also the idea of breathing out. B.B. Warfield wrote a very um, noted book on inspiration. He was a Princeton theologian many years ago. And so when I speak of inspiration, the fact of God and God the Holy Spirit inspiring the texts. One person um, was kind of interacting with him and quoting him on this particular Greek word. It should be noted that Warfield, working from the Greek word theonoustos, did not approve of the word inspiration. The Greek term... This is Warfield has nothing to say of inspiring or of inspiration. It speaks only of aspiring or aspiration. What it says of scripture is not that it is breathed into by God or is the product of the divine inbreathing into its human authors, but that it is breathed out by God. So I think God going into breathing out the scriptures, God breathed the product of the creative breath of God. Pause for a second and, and go to Second Peter one nineteen to twenty one. I think, I think uh, Bob might have referenced a few of these two. Second Peter one nineteen to twenty one. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Back to that quote. Working from 2 Peter 1, 19-21, Warfield pointed out that Scripture not only was the product of divine operation but also came about through the instrumentality of men who spoke from him. The men who spoke from God are here declared, therefore to have been taken up by the Holy Spirit and brought by his power to the goal of his choosing. So scripture is breathed out by God. The first Timothy text doesn't mention the spirit directly, except when you look at the word, you get the inference from the Holy Spirit, meaning the Greek word itself. But then you also have a pairing with this verse about the spirit's work in carrying the prophetic and interpretive work of the writers of scripture. So scripture has its revealing source from the Holy Spirit. So the spirit is not blowing into the text. He's blowing out the text that he is the the source the sense of the word, the sense of that Greek word in, in Timothy, has both an active and a passive sense. Active, the active sense is that God is breathing. God is breathing, active, ing. Passive, God breathed. Like the, God breathed, God did something, God breathed. Though God breathed may be the best and emphasizes the origin of the scriptures, the scriptures are still God breathing now. So there's a little bit of a both and there, though the emphasis is more on the passive. 
Herman Bavinck writes this, Divine inspiration, accordingly, is a permanent attribute of Holy Scripture. It was not only God-breathed at the time it was written, it is God-breathing. It was divinely inspired, not merely while it was written, God-breathing through the writers, but also whilst it, it is being read, God-breathing through the Scripture, and the Scripture breathing Him, He being their very breath. End quote. So with these uh, two texts, the Peter text and the Timothy text, we see that the divine voice, specifically the Holy Spirit, in the production of the scriptures, men carried by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. But what are these scriptures? So that category, we talk about scriptures. What are they? Refers to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Paul, usually when we're reading the Bible, usually... When, when we're reading the New Testament, is talking about the scriptures or the writings or things like that. It's referring to the Old Testament. They're calling because they didn't have this right in front of them right then. Some of them were writing this. <laughs> um, but a lot of times the scriptures can be referring to the Old Testament. So in one sense, you could say that Paul is saying um, all of scripture, all of the Old Testament is God breathed. Now that right there can be completely offensive to us moderns <laughs> that he would dare say that. Um, um, but he puts that in the category, the Apostle Paul, as the scriptures is that which God has breathed out and what God is breathing whenever they sit and read it, which is why they quote it so much, um, because they viewed it as the authority. But scriptures can refer to the Old and the New Testament. Paul makes it clear that the Old Testament was considered to be the scriptures. And later, Peter, back to Peter, who already has a pretty clear view of of them, what um, the scriptures are and the work of the Holy Spirit in them, what the prophets did. But Peter makes clear that Paul's writings um, were considered to be scriptures. Second Peter three fifteen to 16. Second Peter three fifteen to 16. I keep flying by that. There it is. Let's see. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. This is Peter talking about Paul's writings. He writes things hard to understand. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter saying, man, Paul writes really difficult things, but then he also says that people twist those difficult things just like they do other scriptures, bringing the fact that Paul writes the scriptures. So Peter and Paul, who have kind of a history together um, in Galatians, um, Peter's saying Paul's a little difficult sometimes, but it's still the scripture, what he's writing. So we have this category of scripture um, as both New Testament and Old Testament scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself, of course, affirmed the authority of, of the scriptures. Um, he did it several different times. Um, and usually, while well, Jesus was talking about the Old Testament scriptures, um, which um, some of the more Jesus-only crowd, which just wants to only figure out what Jesus did and said, as if and that's kind of a canon within the canon approach. What that means is, yeah, I'm not a big fan of Paul, not a big fan of the Old Testament. Jesus is okay. I'll stick with the Gospels. 
And that's kind of how I'll live my life. That's what I'll believe. But Jesus, several times himself, affirmed the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. And so the Son of God is saying, those are the scriptures. Those are, those are God-breathed. Um, he does that in, in, a few different, in a few different ways. In Matthew 5.17, so this is, the, this is where we used to be on Sunday mornings. Matthew 5, 17 to 18. Man, the Sermon on the Mount is crazy. It is. It's crazy. Matthew, uh, Jesus saying this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So, the Old Testament law. Things like Deuteronomy, Leviticus, um, prophets like... Isaiah, Jeremiah. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus affirming the law and the prophets in, in the highest way and saying, you don't dare relax them. Um, that's, that's Jesus on the authority of the scriptures. He also has another, um, he's also quoted in, I think it's John 10.35, talking about how the scriptures cannot be broken. Um, Jesus affirming the scriptures. If you think about the gospel itself, um, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about that the gospel is the most important thing that there is um, and that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was all in accordance with the scriptures. It's as if Jesus couldn't do anything in his ministry without fulfilling the scriptures. It had to be done. God had said it, so he came to do it and fulfill it. So the gospel is built on the authority of the scriptures and the inspiration of, of the scriptures. So how? How did the Spirit do this? So did he take over the bodies of the apostles and the prophets of Moses or David or Paul? Did he dictate to them? So God the Holy Spirit kind of dictates. They just kind of sit there at their chair or whatever in the dark in their candle um, and their hand is just moving while they're sitting there. Catatonic. Um, or did he just literally, they're just literally hearing a voice the entire time and writing it down. Um, no, that's not how it worked. Um, the best view of inspiration to hold, um, we believe, is the organic view of Scripture. Organic view of Scripture, which is opposed to the mechanical view of Scripture. So we have an organic view, and then we have a mechanical view. Mechanical. This one is more like dictation. How's that for dictation? <laughs> um, um, one theologian said this, the divine word always remains in and through the human words, not just alongside of them or overwhelming them. So the reason why he's saying that is because some said, well, the divine word is alongside of the scriptures, but it's not really the scriptures, but it's alongside of it. Um, or the divine word is just completely overwhelming them. Almost like there's kind of a liberal view and there's kind of an ultra-conservative view. Um, the organic view is, is kind of going in the middle. That's probably too, too friendly. 
Um, um, but but um, an, an organic view is, is basically saying that it's both the words of man and it's the words of God. With, of course, God breathing it out. So it's true to say Paul wrote Romans and it's true to say the Holy Spirit wrote Romans. You don't have to feel bad for saying either one of them both are true. And actually, you probably shouldn't just say one of them. Because if you only say the Holy Spirit wrote it, you're actually discounting the fact that he actually used human people and human agents, which is some of the beauty of the way God works in the world. Fundamentalists only want to emphasize that the Holy Spirit wrote Romans and liberals only want to emphasize that Paul wrote Romans. Horton explains the difference between the two. Mechanical inspiration is the belief that the biblical writers were merely passive in the process of inspiration. Just passive. Often this view represents the Bible as having been dictated entirely and directly by the Spirit. Organic inspiration is the belief that the biblical writers were fully involved in the process of inspiration with their own distinctive intellectual, cultural, linguistic, and personality traits contributing to the text. This view also emphasizes the long historical process in which revelation was given and therefore the evident circumstances of the time and place of each book. So there is a human agency in the production of the scriptures. And we even see that in in that second Peter verse where it talked about prophecies, but also the way in which the prophets were interpreting reality as well. Um, So the error of strict fundamentalism is is um, is that it's too mechanical. Um, It's kind of viewing physical and physical being and human beings as like there's something wrong. Kind of got to stay away from that human side a little bit. But God is constantly affirming his good creation in the scriptures over and over again. And it's shown in that he uses creatures, he uses men and women, well, mainly men, um, to to write the word. Um, Liberals can take it too far. They focus on the natural part of the text while avoiding the supernatural part. But again, there's a, there's a both and here. Were you going to ask what? Yeah. Go for it. Okay, so I got the attention. That was good. Okay. Okay. So now on the other side, okay, Paul's in there, pen and hand, papers there. And I understand organic is part of who he is, uh-huh. his thoughts and all that. So... Is your thought then it's the Holy Spirit kind of, you know, putting it into his... I need to have a clearer down-to-earth uh-huh. explanation of how that works. That's, well, that's a challenge. Um, okay. um, because, just well, well, if you think about it in terms of Paul was writing to real churches, real people, oh, real history, talking about things that were happening then, interacting... He's not just, and then he's usually using somebody else to write it. Tertius, I think, wrote Romans, I believe it was. Um, so he's usually using a scribe. So he's sitting there and who knows how they're talking or whatever. Um, and, and so there's something genuinely human that's happening in that moment with the present and circumstances. Oh, we got this gift coming over here and these people over here are doing this. And hey, I got to rebuke that person and remember to mention that person. And then I need to bring up this doctrine or whatever. Maybe so it's... So it's real personality, it's real culture, it's real place, it's real human agency. And then somehow, yes, the divine voice, the, the spirit is actually breathing out and moving through Paul as he does that. How that works, 
the, the whole Bofan thing is, is hard to explain. Does anybody? So which which I understand. It. I mean, like how that how that all works. It's it, it's trying to say how are you trying to be as faithful to what is there as possible in in whatever particular view you're looking at. Because it seems like because it's not um, because there's something so circumstantial. There's different personalities in the way that the different writers write. We even see in the Gospels that that Matthew and Luke they all have differences. Um, not differences in the sense of that they're contradicting, but there's different reasons, there's different audiences. So again, there's a very human, I'm going to a Jewish audience, so I'm going to tell that story about Jesus in this way. Right. Now, we can either view that as, well, he's kind of twisting it. Why doesn't he just say exactly what happens? But they're giving interpretation of what's happening as they're writing. And then Peter is saying that that interpretation itself can be carried along by the Holy Spirit so that there's actually meaning and divine meaning in the text when we read it. Um, is that answering your question at all? Yes, and I think the bottom line for me would uh-huh. be to be able to say that if Peter King or Paul Gordon were talking about there, and all of a sudden had a headache and it was a, just a uh-huh. lucky day, he's hungry and he's kind of like, let's just sum this up. The Holy Spirit still was in control of either saying you were not faced with this issue or erase this part, we're going to rethink it or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, well, yeah, yeah, it would be that there would be no infection of, of, of either sin or something that's not true right. um, or him um, saying something that is wrong. That, that yeah that definitely would have happened because yeah I mean maybe maybe the bathroom break that he had um, you know after the bad food you know was 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 just because of that and he had to stop and then the Holy Spirit had a reason for that and then he moved back and started talking to his scribe and it was all and it was all good but but again it, it it's true this is, this is another mystery that there's there's all kinds of mysteries in the Bible <laughs> um, about how exactly that works um, but just this idea that's not just mechanical. Um, and yes, it's organic, it's real, it's human, the human agency, and at the same time, this, this, it, is, it is the divine word that he is writing. Um, uh, anybody else? Question on that or thought on that? Uh-oh. As you could think about Moses, when God said, I will give you the words to speak to Pharaoh. That was inspired. Yeah. And you know he uses own words. You know he used the situations that were there, but God gave him the the right way to say it in a way that was. You know, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and there's the thought of because there's the different. There's different ways that the Bible communicates. When you're reading the prophets, a lot of times it's like saying the voice of God. Meaning like, thus saith the Lord, and then bam, seven chapters. Mm-hmm. It's just all God talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have things like Matthew or things like, like interacting with things that are going on in history and places and days. And it's not like the writer is saying right then, thus says the Lord, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. You know what I mean? Um, but, but somehow there's something in the fact that real Trophimus was sick in Miletus that is communicating some kind of divine, all scripture is God breathed thing to us for us to know that. So the, um, the statements of history and the meanings be behind it are all somehow carried along. By the Holy Spirit. Aside from just, we just got to hold hold on to the just the thus saith the Lord chapters, or we just got to hold on to the when Jesus is talking on the Sermon on the Mount. And yeah, we'll we'll give him he moved from this spot to that spot. That's just the narrator talking. Um, so no, actually, it's saying the Scripture is a category. All Scripture 
from Genesis of whatever kind of communication that's happening is all God breathed and giving meaning to us. Go ahead. Do you have something? Oh, I think you're just saying, like, there's like, because there's like, even clear, there's different, like, modes of. Modes, yeah. There's a modes of the way, like, we are saying, like, God said the Lord runs down on Yeah. But all of it, but we're still saying that all of that, like, all of it. Yeah. I was even thinking, like, um, like, I guess experientially, like, times that you're talking to someone, you just feel like God really helped you, like, communicate some stuff, and, like, they hit on, like, oh, that totally helps you. Like, well, that was really, like, God was really helping me in that moment. But then, like, hide that to, like, the Supreme. So, like, we even in small sense, I guess, sense God doing stuff like that through humans. Like, any time that we serve each other as a body, like, it's God working through us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's uh, good. Yeah. That's good. But I guess yeah. really answer the question ultimately, like, what would it feel like if God was like, yeah, well, yeah. I actually go to the experience. Now. Um, yeah, there's something to say about that, too. Uh, just the thought, too. Um, this kind of gets into the whole doctrine of revelation too about so the gospel is the most important thing so there also can be these variations um, in in what is revealed um, because this is like the like all of the law and all of Leviticus still God breathed period end of story but are we doing it right now some of that stuff no and, and then there's scriptural reasons of why um, but but so there can even be kind of and I got to be careful only now to say this like almost almost levels just like how so God's revelation in nature is one way it reveals God in Scripture it's another way and then in His Son it's like the fullest way in Jesus it's the fullest revelation of God He is the final and fullest revelation of who He is that's not discounting or lowering the other stuff but there is something greater and more magnificent and even sometimes in um, there's there's a reason why. Um, certain passages of, of the Gospels um, can can um, um, I don't know if you're say this uh, can be can be more I want to say saving but I don't think but I don't think that's the right word in comparison to like a chronology in the Old Testament and the chronology still matters it's still linking everything up and there's a whole reason why but but there can be um, Varied revelation. If I want to say it that way, that could be a wrong way to say it. Um, anybody else want to comment on that? No. no it, it's kind of like you know. For me, it's in a simple way. It's, it's God totally dominant, totally in control, using my my foil, my 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 frailty mm-hmm. to bring about an understanding of who He is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's in other words, He's. You know, he uses all my. He even uses my sins, if you will, to show me how I need him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. And that comes from his word. Yeah. So you know, Paul. He, you know, Paul wasn't sinless. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't. You know, and in fact, he goes through the Holy Spirit and even inspires him to tell us, make sure we understand. It's not Paul that's perfect here. It's God. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he used all of Paul's experience, even as a Pharisee. Yep. To bring about yeah. his revelation. Yep. Yeah, and, and that's a good point. When he's right, it, it's not saying that, that Paul is always truthful in everything that Paul ever did. No, it's saying when when Paul wrote Romans, it was. Um, um, it, it, it's not saying that Paul always made the right decisions, that Paul never sinned. 
Um, but, but in the time when he was writing the letters of the Romans, Thessalonians, whatever, that that was inspired. And Moses was not a perfect man, obviously. David was not a perfect man, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, and God used them to write a perfect um, scriptures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think even in our own lives uh, today, I, I know that uh, there's often times that the Holy Spirit speaks to me or speaks through me. Because, you know, I'll be confronted by, you know, somebody asked me a question and and after it's done, it's like, wow, where did that come from? That wasn't yeah. me. Yep. <laughs> you know, so he's, you know, still, he still uses, uses the Holy Spirit through everybody mm-hmm. if we're open to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does. A um, couple of quick things, and then we got to turn to illumination. Um, so a couple of just quick little bullet points uh, is is that the authority again comes from the Holy Spirit in the scriptures and so that the church is not the one that gives scripture the authority that God is the one that gives scripture its authority um, it's God the Holy Spirit that is speaking the truth it's not the church so later on um, <clears throat> Levi will get into this a little bit when he talks about the formation of the canon it's not the church saying we're going to put all these books together um, uh, and, and then that's going to give it its authority. But it's that the word itself has such power that that's the reason why it was assembled and everything else. It wasn't the ones assembling giving it the authority. Um, and we'll talk about that more later. But just as a quick reminder that the authority is the spirits. The authority is God. It is not the, the church. Um, and then, of course... Connected to this um, is the idea of, some say, verbal plen- plenary, plenary inspiration full. So basically that all of the Bible is inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, we also talk about inerrancy, um, that, that, that all of the scriptures are saying truthfulness when it speaks on anything, not just saving things. So it's not just true when it talks about the fact that God sent his son to save sinners, but it's true when it addresses any other issue of science or humanity or whatever it may be, that it's always true. Now, the way the church or the people have always interpreted that throughout history, they've really butchered it at times, and we will have too. Later on, whenever that is. Um, um, we will butcher at times our understanding of what it was saying, but it's still inerrant all the way across the board. And then there's a Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy that, that, talks, about, that talks about that. Another little tricky part, which I'm sure we'll get into in translation issues, is we're not saying that this is inerrant. I always thought you just said it was inerrant. Um, translations aren't necessarily utterly without mistake and error all the way through. Um, the, they make a distinction uh, of the original manuscripts, that when Paul was writing the actual manuscript, which we don't have, that that was inerrant. Some say, well, why does it even matter then? Well, when you start to look at it all, there is almost nothing important that is contradicted or changed in comparison to all the different manuscripts that they have. And again, that's a later thing anyway. But these are all issues that come up when you're talking about whether it's truthful or not. Because if God is, because if we're saying that God is saying it, it's got to be truthful. Otherwise, God is not true. Um, um, but there are some questions and how do we work it all together? Um, and we're not going to have always a... A, an exact answer that answers all of the questions except for the good news, which answers the ultimate question. Um, so there's there's a more to say in there. But illumination, um, um, we got to move to that, illumination. 
um, that the Holy Spirit also works to illuminate believers. And so the inspiration of scriptures does not automatically cause the illumination of the scriptures. So the Holy Spirit breathes out the scriptures, but the only way the scriptures are seen to be what they really are, the word of God, is through the work of the Holy Spirit enlightening the mind. So there's a couple things going on here. Again, it's coming from outside us, divine authority, the Holy Spirit um, breathing it out um, in inspiration outside. And that's still the word of God, but we don't always receive it as such. Um, the only way um, that it can be received as what it really is, is by the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does the inspiring and, and then the Holy Spirit also does the illuminating and the enlightening of our minds. In 1 Corinthians, um, we see that a lot. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when it talks about how you know, the natural man cannot accept the Spirit of God. Um, and how the Spirit of God has to open the eyes of our hearts in Ephesians. All this language about what the work of the Spirit does. Karl Barth um, defines illumination this way. And I'll quote him just for fun because I disagree with him a little bit on what he says about illumination. Or I should say a lot. But on this part, he said it really well. Illumination is a scene of which man was previously incapable, but of which he is now capable. It is his advancement to knowledge that the revelation of God shines on him and in him takes place in such a way that he hears, receives, understands, grasps and appropriates what is said to him in it. Not with new and special organs, but with the same organs of apperception with which he knows other things, yet not in virtue of his own capacity to use them, but in virtue of the missing capacity which he is now given by God's revelation. So again, this beautiful interaction of the Holy Spirit using our own agency, our minds, our hearts, and everything else, but then giving us new capacities for what is already there so that we can really see. And that's what illumination is. So what, <clears throat> what, what um, Karl Barth had said in different passages was basically that the scriptures were not the word of God until you received it as the word of God. That is not correct. That's what happens when you collapse inspiration and illumination and say that it's the same thing. Um, it's not. It can, the word of God comes at you in the scriptures and it can come at you and still be the word of God and you not receive it. Um, um, but so it's not just God's word when you receive it. It still it still is the word of God. Uh, Michael Byrd discusses this problem. Some models of revelation pr practically c collapse revelation and illumination together. This is apparent chiefly in neo-orthodoxy. For Barth, the Bible is not God's word per se. It only becomes God's word when God speaks to people through it. The scriptural words are those of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Matthew, Paul, or Luke. When God speaks through them then, and only then, are the words a revelation. So for Karl Barth, the Bible is God's word to the extent that God causes it to be his word. But illumination does not make God's word God's word. But it does make God's word embraced as what it actually is. That it's the word of God. Just as the gospel is good news regardless of whether it's received or not. Um, so the word of God is the word of God regardless of whether it's treated as such. People can receive good news as bad news. But God's good news is still good. And people can treat something as not the word of God and it still be um, we see this in a couple different ways in, in Scripture. First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians has some great verses on 
illumination and the work of the Spirit in making us understand and believe and receive the Word of God as it really is. And then also kind of addresses some of these other controversies that, that kind of collapse the Word of God in Revelation. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 He's speaking to the Thessalonians, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. So this idea that that hey Thessalonians, you received the word of God and you accepted it as it really was. It didn't become something else. But it was the word of God and you accepted it. In First um, Thessalonians uh, one four to five, shows just the work of illumination on their hearts. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So that's what happens when illumination happens. The gospel comes and it's not rejected, but the spirit illuminates it and it's believed. Anytime somebody believes the gospel and trusts the scriptures, that's the work of the spirit. Um, so the spirit breathes it out and speaks it objectively. Um, and then the spirit also subjectively works in us to receive it in our experience. Um, so again, you have this kind of playoff between the objective and, and the subjective that is happening. We don't want to discount either. Both are unbelievably important. And we don't want to collapse them either as well. So even though the work of illumination happens within you, so again, inside of you, um, the ground of the truthfulness of the scriptures is not found within you. It's found in the work of the Spirit. The Spirit awakens you to see what is really there. That's something John Piper uh, mentions a lot in his new book, A Peculiar Glory, um, where he talks a lot about this. So, there's a question that happens, though. Um, your, your feeling and your experience of the belief isn't what makes it authoritative. It's that the Spirit itself makes it authoritative. Again, the source isn't just, oh, I feel good when I heard the Bible. That's why it's true. That's why, that's why the authority is there. It's that the Spirit is actually working in the Word to show you both together that it is really that it is really there. The Spirit testifies to it. The Spirit makes us makes us see. Um, there's several spots I wanted to go, but I'm not going to have time, which is okay. I'm going to finish up here in just a second. I think this was helpful. Um, John Piper, um, so in, in A Peculiar Glory, he says this. Uh, because, because there's a term that's kind of used, uh, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Well, what is that? Is that that the Holy Spirit comes and whispers to us? Oh, yeah, that's God's word. So is that what the Holy Spirit is? Or, or is that what the Holy Spirit is doing when he testifies? No, it's that when he's testifying that it's really there. Puts it this way. So even though the expression testimony of the Spirit might mislead us into thinking, it means added information to what we have in the Scripture, Calvin, and he's, he's interacting with Calvin here. Calvin meant that the work of the Spirit was to open the eyes of our hearts to see the majesty of God in the Scriptures. We can sit and hear the Scriptures and not see the majesty of God. We just see words on a page. Boring. Don't want to order my life around this. Don't care. Well, that's still, revel that's still inspiration. That's still the Spirit. But the Spirit hasn't witnessed into your heart that it is the Word of God and made you believe it because you haven't seen that it really is. Anyway, back to him. 
Um, in this sense, then, though it sounds paradoxical, the testimony of the Spirit is the work of God to give us the sight of the self-testimony of Scripture. And then he quotes Calvin. Let this point therefore stand that those whom the Holy Spirit has inwardly taught truly rest upon Scripture and the Scripture indeed is self-authenticated, meaning the glory is already there in the text. The testimony of the Spirit is by and with the Word. By and with the Word. Um, is what what Calvin had said. Um, But... Piper says the focus, as with Calvin, is not on added information, but on how the spirit enables us to see what the scripture itself reveals. Um, So the highest proof, the highest proof of scripture, and this is what Calvin says, derives in general from the fact that God in person speaks in it, that he is the one that is speaking so we can look for other proofs of scripture. We can do things like prophecies and hey, this psalm matched up with Jesus later, like what Bob talked about. Um, Isaiah, suffering servant, Isaiah 53, all that was fulfilled then. Yeah, there are all kinds of apologetic ways to defend it and interact with people and to say, hey, hey, this, um, yeah, here's, here's evidence for some of the truthfulness of scripture. Did you ever consider this? You know, 500 years before, blah, blah, blah. That, um, and then Jesus fulfilled it and it happened. So that's one way, and those are good ways that, that God used to help us understand. But the main way is when the person wakes up and sees, I'm a sinner and need a, need a Savior, and that's what you can't do. And that's the main proof, um, that's the highest proof of Scripture, is when God himself, the author of Scripture, makes it believed in the person. Um, so that is the, the highest authority and the greatest authorship. Um, Piper talks a lot about the concern and he mentions Billy Graham's concern about all apologetics and someone even argue this kind of stuff. Why sit and why learn everything? Are you just going to try to convince everybody? And in some senses, you cannot, in your own fallenness, with the greatest argumentation, offer all of these proofs to get somebody saved in some kind of scientific, rational, oh, I, I got my 13 questions answered. No, it's one day you get saved. And the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and you see. Um, you see the fact that it's true. The fact that that is good news. The fact that um, God and Christ came to save sinners. The fact that this is authoritative. But it's not that something outside is whispering to you that is true. And that whisper is what's making it true. It's that it already is. Um, and the Spirit comes and testifies to it and gives it um, authority. We've got a couple minutes left. Any any questions at the moment? I could go on, but I'm not going to because I'm not going to go past our time. But any, so what uh, would you say, like, so if you talk, like, more missionaries come to your door, right? Yeah. And their way of, like, validating the book of Mormon yeah. as yeah. scriptures, like, well, you just read yeah. it, and there you're going to have this experience for this, they call it the burning of the but like, yeah. some experience where the Holy Spirit validates this was the Word of God. So how would you... Distinguish yeah, no, that's that's, and I'm still having a challenge with trying to figure that out. Um, in the sense of, in the sense of, because I wasn't going to have to leave. I about this a little bit earlier. It, is I was going to play some video of um, Mormons talking about um, the work of the Holy Spirit, which sounds almost exactly like probably most of us would talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Things like peace, things like you know, makes me makes me feel a certain way. I mean, all, all these kind of language was very feeling oriented, um, and. And they really push this idea of, of, a, of a burning of the bosom, 
um, some kind of, of um, inner awareness and experience, so a very subjective reason of why it's true. And so what, that's what we're not saying, is that it's purely resting on the subjective reason of, I felt this, and therefore it's true. I mean, people say that all the time in our culture, and we'd be no different from anybody else. If we just say, yeah, Christianity feels right. Well, great, who cares what you feel? I mean, ultimately, if there's a God in the universe, um, and so the source has to be him, but yes, it's genuinely interacting with your whole person, your intellect and your emotions and everything else, which is why it's not just a objective, oh, I followed those arguments, and yep, I'm in. And I'm done. No, it's it's a life of obedience that shows that the Spirit is working. It's some sense of understanding, an acknowledgement of your sinfulness, of, of the Savior, which is already being paved and said in the Scriptures. But the way in which them to really um, distinguish that, I still haven't figured out yet. Um, meaning, meaning in a very clear way. I still, even as I've been looking at this stuff, I'm having a hard time at times really articulating and clarifying this... Um, the, the experiential power of the Holy Spirit in the life that's, that's clear all through the New Testament that should be there. Um, not just an intellectual reasoning approach. Um, there's impact. Um, there's, there's, there's change. Um, but but um, how to distinguish it against those who would just say, like in the burning of the bosom approach, except that they are saying, and, and you can even read it, um, on their website, mormon.org, it talks about how to know you know, the Book of Mormon is true. God's method is simple. We read the Book of Mormon, we pray and ask him to tell us that what we've read is true. And he answers us through feelings of peace and assurance given by the Holy Ghost. Um, so what we've got to be careful is not to sound like that, that um, our highest thing is because it felt like this was true. That's not the right answer. Uh, that's no different than almost any religion, any cultural idea, anything. Um, um, it has to come from, from the Spirit and the Word working together, again, because that's what it says happens. There's, there, there's this constant dynamic between the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit is the source of the Word. He gives the Word, and then He breathes on the Word, and He helps people understand it. And, and then you awaken to it, and you believe it. It's this big um, circle that's always tying back to the work of the Holy Spirit, which does affect your experience. But the experience itself alone isn't the reason. I, I think not answering that question and just go back to the history of Mormonism and a lot of their, uh, just how they came to be in America and it's not yeah. historical. There's no historical findings. Uh-huh. And, and my friend actually... Her dad collected over generations of the Book of Mormon, and that he has three different mm-hmm. copies. They have they're not the same. Yeah. There's, a, there's very big differences in them. So yeah, it's not consistent like the Bible is. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Which is which you're like like that's a good apologetic way to defend and say, well, this is why it's wrong. And here's just a very clear here's a evidence of, of why it's wrong. But what we got to be careful. And I think some of the Levi's getting that too is that we don't sound just like the Mormons. Mm-hmm. Um, always speaking of just our experience. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason I'm here's my testimony, as if that this kind of gets into like as if your testimony alone is what saved you. This is why I got changed. This is why I quit doing this. This is why. This is why my first 20 years was filled with debauchery and my next 20 years wasn't. And I went to a Bible study and, 
And, um, and man, I hope you can hear my testimony. And then because I had a great testimony, you receive my testimony and then you're changed. No, it's the gospel against the announcement outside of you. That's what changes you. That's the ultimate part. It isn't the experience. The experience matters a ton. That's, I mean, that's how you got saved. That's a, that's a huge thing. That's how the spirit awakens you. Um, but it's not the, the final ground um, of, of authority. So we have to kind of be careful in the way in which we talk about it. That, that experience alone isn't, isn't, isn't the highest evidence of it. Because then we're just talking like everybody else is. Um, and at the same time, we, we don't want to go too much on the objective side. And only emphasizing just kind of more of a, just read your Bible, um, do your Bible study, listen to your sermons. It's all intellectual. Get your journal out, read all your books. It's just all head, 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 head. Um, there's a clear, it's all over the place of the illuminating work of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and, and the changed hearts, love of God poured in your heart. All this very experiential language, which is why some of these other approaches about the interpretive, interpretation of Scripture can be so powerful in our culture, like the one that says it becomes the Word of God when you believe it. It doesn't, but there's something about that encounter that it feels so powerful and big. Um, um, but no, it already was. It already was the word of God. Um, and, and yes, it yes it changed me. Um, but, but the Holy Spirit is, isn't the one who made me see. Anyway, um, so there's obviously, there's, there's a lot more we could talk about, but it's um, two minutes. So maybe one last question and then we'll pray. Um, yeah, well, just what you guys were talking about, um, you know, you know, you know, passage came to mind, you know, you know, you know, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness and, and and you know, you saw like you know, Satan telling Jesus back to using Bible verses, and then Jesus came back in with more scripture. And just, I mean, yeah. I know, this whole idea that, that the Bible is the absolute word of God is so important because yeah. you can distinguish truth from lies. It's like, yeah, like, like yeah, you can see the Book of Mormon is false because it doesn't match up with scripture. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, and that, he didn't just say, I'm Jesus, get away from yeah. the Satan. Mm-hmm. Just say, oh, I'm Jesus, don't you know who I am? Ball yeah. game over. You know, he like, he just said, rat tat tat, Deuteronomy. He just quoted that in him, um, um, which again just showing his 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 um, Jesus's focus on the utter authority of Scripture for his own life, the divine son, the divine and human again that tension, <laughs> both and Son of God. How does that work? Um, uh, um, uses the Scripture um, as his authority over the devil. Again, it just shows. So, yeah. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, and we just thank we're thankful for uh, your. Your word and that you did speak to us and we also are thankful for the power of your spirit and I just pray that you would help us to help us to grow. Um, we, we need to see you more clearly and Father, so many things that, that I need to see, need to, need to work on, need to, need to have, have changed, um, need to grow. And that comes through your spirit and that comes through your word. So we ask for both in my life. I ask for both in in each one here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just one quick passage for you. Uh, It was presented to me as the Colossians cycle, but it's uh, Colossians uh, 1, 9, and 10. From this day we heard that you have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And it is kind of a cycle, or a spirit, you know, the, the more you know. And you're not going to 
to be able to scientifically set it outside over here and, and diagnose it, and, and, and it is going to be something that happens in a transition and change the way you think. And, and there's no way, it's, it's not like something you can just put into a formula. You know, it's, you know, it, it, it's, and, and Paul speaks of it here, spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding. If you don't have that, you won't get it. You know, and so it, it is a process of the Holy Spirit doing it in you. I found a, a, a good picture of the role of the Holy Spirit um, in bringing God in the scripture. Uh, interestingly, interestingly, this Greek word for carried along in 2 Peter 1.21 is the same word found in Acts 27.15-17. The experienced sailors could not navigate the ship because the wind was so strong. The ship was being driven, directed, and carried about by the wind. This is similar to the spirit driving, directing, and carrying the human authors of the Bible as he wished. The word is a strong one, indicating the spirit's complete superintendence of the human authors. Yet, just as the sailors were active on the ship through the wind, I mean, sorry, though the wind, not the sailors, controlled the ship's movement. So the human authors were active in writing, using their own writing styles as the Spirit directed. Visual. Mm -hmm. The organic view in a picture? Yeah. To both Mm -hmm. ends? No. Good. (laughs) Next time it's canon, right? Yeah. Old Testament Testament canon. Is like an overpowering. Yeah. There'll be certain times where, where, it's, where it's almost like more natural if you're sitting down with your scribe to write a lot. Yeah. And probably other times where you're just like taking over. Like that time, like he just kept prophesying or whatever. Yeah. That one sounds almost more like kind of down. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah, and then King Herod, like, like, like he's using the wear that they've got a signature in 